Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see each of you here today. A number of our members are away for the Thanksgiving holiday, but it's a good thing to see. New faces in the room this morning. Welcome to this gathering of Covenant Baptist Church. We are glad to have you with us. And if there's one thing that we would want you to know about us, it's that like we just sung, we understand that there are two things that are true for all of us today. One is that we will fail to meet God's righteous standard. And two is that Christ has paid for every failing and we are his forever. And that's why we're here. And so let's now go to the Lord one more time in prayer before we look to his word together as we start the first of four sermons on the Christian life in a fallen world. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come to you acknowledging the fact that life is hard a lot of the time for us. We acknowledge that we are weak and that we are frail in and of ourselves. We like to think that we are strong. We like to think that we are impervious to difficulty, but those things are not true. The struggle is real for all of us in the room. And we do pray that you would come now and use this time as we look to your word to strengthen us, to comfort us, to encourage us as we read the words of one of your people from a long time ago that resonate very much with our own experience. Come by your spirit and minister to us, we pray. Show us ourselves within your word and more than anything, show us yourself and your faithfulness and show us our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Talk to me about the truth of religion and I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion and I'll listen submissively. But don't come talking to me about the consolations of religion or I shall suspect that you don't understand. Those are the words of C.S. Lewis from a book that he wrote called A Grief Observed. He wrote it in the aftermath of his wife's death. Those words resonate, I trust, with many in the room. They resonate with me. Oftentimes in the church, real struggle is dismissed or perhaps trivialized with platitudes. Verses are slapped up on the refrigerator. We throw around some catchy cliche kind of one-liners, and we think that we have dealt with the problem of pain. The message that people get a lot, even in the church, is that if you're a Christian, if we are Christians, then our lives are always getting better. If we are Christians, we are regularly and even constantly improving. Ours is the trajectory of onward and upward. This might come in many forms. It might come in the form of seven steps to better relationships or five ways to have a better handle on your finances or whatever it may be. But this is what we hear regularly, that we are always improving Onward and upward, our lives are getting better because we are, after all, hashtag blessed. Well, friends, this kind of perspective demonstrates some ignorance of the message of the Bible 
And it demonstrates some ignorance as well of the cries of God's people through history. Listen to these words from the Bible. Like when I'm about to read these, some in the room might think there's no way that's in the Bible. But it it is. These we heard this morning already. When I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint. If I could just sleep, maybe it would go away, right? Then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. To God, leave me alone for my days are a breath. Those are the words of Job. These words. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Or these from Solomon. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. So real talk. Many in the church, many even in this room this morning, are weary. There are many good things in life. Like, let's not misunderstand what we're talking about. There are many good things in life. We just celebrated Thanksgiving. We thanked God for all kinds of blessings. We could list a number of blessings that we are experiencing even this morning. God is good and he's gracious. And so we have good things in life. And at the same time, life in this fallen Genesis 3 world is often hard. Suffering and pain, heartache, disappointment, frustration, discouragement, despair. We all know what those things feel like. Some of you may be feeling and experiencing those things right now. We experience toil in our jobs or difficulty in school or strife in our relationships regularly. Sometimes it's crisis and calamity and disasters that come upon us. And then sometimes it's just the monotony of the daily grind that absolutely just grinds us and crushes us down into power. And brothers and sisters, we don't do anybody any favors if we don't talk about these things. If we don't talk about these things in the church, we do nobody any favors. If we don't acknowledge the hard, we're not helping one another. We're not being honest even about the realities of life. 
Now, again, to be clear, the point is not to feel sorry for ourselves. The point is not to spend four weeks throwing a kind of pity party for all of us here at CBC. The point is to live honestly and openly with one another in the church and to point one another to Christ. And he, we remember and remind one another all the time, he is the only one who can give real hope in the midst of heartache and pain, not apart from heartache and pain. So we are embarking on a four-part series entitled All Who Are Weary. I trust many in the room may realize where that comes from. It comes from the words of Christ in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And essentially, as has been said a couple of times this morning, these sermons will be four messages on the Christian life in a fallen world. We are not in the new heavens and the new earth yet. And so oftentimes we struggle. That is our experience from day to day and week to week. God's word is not silent on weariness. It's not silent on pain or suffering or despair. And I, for one, am grateful that that's the case. I trust many of you are too. And so if you have your Bibles, I hope that you do open them up to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, as you flip there, I will just say a few brief words about this psalm by way of almost a second introduction, though I don't think it needs a lot of help from me. When I read these words here in just a minute, I trust you will be interested in our time together as we look at it, because these words so resonate with our experience. It's why it's beloved by so many people. Psalm 73 is breathtaking in its honesty. And the honesty of the psalmist Asaph is sometimes unsettling and even a little bit unnerving for many of us who have come of age or cut our teeth in the evangelical church. It makes us a little bit uncomfortable, but it's good for us to consider God's word together this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, don't sweat that at all. We'll have the words to Psalm 73 up here on the screen for you to follow along. And so now before we consider the psalm together, it would be good to read it. And so listen now to God's word. A psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. and Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought about 
how to understand these things, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, and swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. In its beautiful and even unsettling honesty. Thanks be to God for that. So I don't really have a, a very formal outline for us this morning. Hopefully that doesn't make anybody uncomfortable in the room. What we're going to do is just work our way through the psalm. I'll try to give some headings and some handles that will help you to arrange it if you're taking notes. And I hope that it's making sense to you and that you're able to track with me as I prayerfully track with God's word. So we'll begin our time with the inspired heading of Psalm 73. You can put your eyes on there where it says a Psalm of Asaph. I just want to consider briefly who this man was. Asaph was of the tribe of Levi. And so many will know that that means that he was involved in tabernacle worship and ministry. He would have been involved in that sense in the Levitical priesthood who would have been in charge of how things were conducted in terms of the worship of God in the tabernacle. Asaph was a contemporary of King David. You can read of his life mostly in 1 Chronicles, along with a couple of other mentions in another book. David put Asaph in charge of the worship music, essentially, that was performed at the tent of meeting. Remember, this was before the building of an actual temple. Solomon would build his temple in the years following David's life. So not only was Asaph in charge of worship music for the congregation of Israel, including psalms that David would have written, putting them to music. Asaph also wrote psalms himself. He wrote 12 of them. Psalm 50 and then 11 consecutive psalms, beginning with Psalm 73 through 83. It's a brief word about him, who this man was. Let's put our eyes now on verse 1. Verse 1 functions almost like a disclaimer or even a warning statement. You know, like that all capital red letters with like the white writing underneath. It's like this. So Asaph begins, verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Okay, here's what's true, friends. Here's what's true. This is what Asaph is saying to us. This is where I ended up. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He's going to go on to tell us there was a time, however, where I was not so sure that he was, in fact, good. He is reflecting back in verses 2 and following on his reactions to life. 
life happened to Asaph like it happens to you and to me. And he reflects for us on every wrong thing that he felt and every wrong thing that he thought. Let's put your eyes on verses two and three. Asaph is going to tell us where he was. Verse two, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. Suffice it to say he was not doing well. He was in a precarious place. Verse three, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I was envious of the arrogant and the wicked people whom I observed because I saw their prosperity. So this is, this is very real. This is like in our experience when we are overcome and overwhelmed by a feeling of not liking our life. I don't like my life. That's something that many people think. I don't want my life. I actually like that life. I want that life. And as Asaph is going to depict for us, God, I'm contemplating doing whatever it might take to have that life, even if it means changing everything that I think about you. Have you ever been there? My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. There was a time when I wasn't sure that God is in fact good. The psalmist Asaph, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, don't miss that piece, immortalizes his innermost thoughts and feelings from perhaps some of the darkest seasons of his life. It's interesting that in the evangelical church, we often don't allow one another to go here. We don't talk the way that Asaph writes. We discourage one another from talking like that because we think it impious. To be clear, it's wrong to doubt God. I think we can all agree on that. It is wrong to doubt God. It is wrong to question God's goodness. But because we are sinners and because life is so often hard, it is sadly normal to wrestle and struggle and doubt. There needs to be room in the church for people to talk the way that Asaph writes. He writes what we think. He writes what we feel. It's one way to think about it. It's what the, like the roofs of our cars or the pillows that we scream into, what they hear, he writes down. It's real and honest. The things that we would never say in public because we don't think that they're fit for public consumption, he writes down by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the beauty of all of this, brothers and sisters, is that God is big enough to handle it. Let's put our eyes on verses 4 through 12 and consider Asaph's description of the arrogant and the wicked. The life that he envies. He says, verse four, for they have no pangs until death. 
Their bodies are fat and sleek. They don't know need. They don't know wanting. They don't know what it's like to go without. They don't know difficulty. They don't know pain. Their lives go brilliantly well until the day that they die. Verse 5, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They don't face the same kind of problems that I do, that we do. They don't know calamity. They don't know disaster. They don't know hardship. Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. They just waltz through life in pride, violently doing whatever they want with whomever they want. They use people. Verse 7, their eyes, they swell out through fatness. What a turn of phrase that is. The opulence is just off the charts. Their eyeballs are fat, for crying out loud. Their hearts overflow with follies, but it doesn't matter. They're foolish, but things go well for them. Verse 8, they scoff and they speak with malice and loftily they threaten oppression. They're scoffers. They speak wicked things and evil things and threatening things. They oppress other people or at least threaten people with oppression. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. They say whatever they want, even about God. They say whatever they want, even about God. And they strut through the earth as though that's fine and good. Now, verse 10, therefore his people being God's people, therefore God's people turn back and find no fault in them. It must be okay for them to live this way. It must be okay for them to strut through the earth and speak horrible things even about heaven because God's not doing anything. They find no fault in them. I want to be them. Verse 11, God's people say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? How could God know? God, where is your justice? It's very interesting, right? In our experience, we often ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? One of the cries of Scripture, God's people through history, is this one. God, where is your justice? People are living wickedly and doing whatever they want and oppressing and using others. Just seeking nothing but pleasure and dishonest gain and they blaspheme you and you do nothing. Where is your justice? Verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. My life is hard. My life is full of struggle. My life is full of hardship. Theirs is full of nothing but prosperity and ease. I'm being drug along like through the mud and they're riding on pillows. It's easy. Now in verse 13, through 15, Asaph is going to consider his life in contrast to theirs. Verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Completely in vain, God, have I pursued righteousness. 
I've worked to keep my heart and my hands clean. And it's all been for absolutely nothing. What good do I see for my pursuit of you? What good do I see for my striving after godliness? I see nothing from it. What have I seen for my striving after righteousness? He answers that in verse 14. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. So far from getting good stuff from God for my pursuit of righteousness, I'm stricken all the time. Rather than getting good stuff from God for pursuing godliness, I'm rebuked every morning. Constantly. In my pursuit of righteousness and in my striving to honor and please God, all I've known is hardship and suffering and discipline and correction. That's what he's saying. The wicked do whatever they want. They don't give a rip about God. They don't pursue righteousness. And yet it all goes well. Verse 15. Asaph goes on to tell us he couldn't even say what he wanted to say. He couldn't even vent about his plight and his predicament. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. If I had said, I'm going to say all this stuff, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Why? Because of his post as a leader in Israel. So he said, I couldn't even talk the way that I wanted to talk because it would have wounded other people. People would have been harmed. All I know is affliction and rebuke for my pursuit of God, and I can't even blow up and vent about that because of my post as a leader amongst Israel. Such is my life. So at this point, I want to make a couple of brief observations. First, Asaph was thinking in terms of retribution. Asaph was thinking in terms of retribution. That kind of thinking goes something like this. The more good I do, the more good I get in this life. The more bad I do, the more bad I get in this life. That in this life piece is critical. The more good I do, the more good I get here. The more bad I do, the more bad I get here. Brothers and sisters, friends, If we think this way, we will go insane. We will absolutely lose our minds if we think in those terms. The more good I do, the more good I get in this life. And the more bad I do, the more bad I get in this life. Why? It's because upon the fall of man, original sin, recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3 in Scripture, a number of things went away. Before sin and before the fall, everything was as it should be. After sin, after the fall, things are no longer the way they ought to be. The world is fallen. The world is broken. One of the things that left the world when sin entered it is fairness. Fair does not exist in a fallen world. There are people who do a lot of good and suffer horribly. Now, 
Let me anticipate the objection. Because you're like, all right, pump the brakes, bro. We're Bible people. We're Bible people. There's no such thing as a good person. Okay, true. True. But you understand what I'm saying. If we're talking in an absolute sense, obviously there's nobody good. Save Christ. But if we're talking in relative terms, life on earth, there are a lot of people who do a lot of good all the time. There are Christians trusting Christ, loving the saints, serving in a local church, pursuing godliness, loving neighbor, who know despair and suffering and heartache and pain day after day after day. And there are people who are not at all concerned with doing good, let alone concerned with God, and live very comfortable lives. If we think in terms of retribution, we will go insane. Second observation. Whenever we face suffering and pain, we are inevitably confronted with questions about God. Whenever we face suffering and pain, we are inevitably confronted with questions about God. Now, this is true for every human being. Whether you are a believer or not, you're still confronted with questions about God and ultimate truth when you encounter suffering and heartache and pain. Because whenever we encounter real suffering, the biggest question for every human being is what? Why? Why? Why is this happening to me? It's what we wrestle with in our soul. And when you ask the why question, you're asking about cause and you're asking about purpose. And when we ask about cause and we ask about purpose, we're asking about God. The wrestling that we experience, high level, it goes something like this. If God is God, as he has revealed himself in his word, he is both sovereign and good. But then when we encounter evil and suffering and heartache and disaster, we conclude from a human level, well, either God is good and he's not sovereign, right? He wanted good stuff to happen. He wanted to stop the evil, but he couldn't pull that off. He's good, but he's not sovereign. Or God is sovereign, but he's not good. He has evil intentions somehow. This is a real struggle for so many people. Even in the church, this is a struggle for us. People come up to us regularly. I have found this to be true in many conversations with many people over the course of years. You say that God is good and that God is sovereign, then explain suffering to me. It's legitimate. So friends, a, a biblical place to be. I would also contend a humble place to be when it comes to these things is to acknowledge these biblical realities. That God is sovereign and he is good. He has created a universe in which evil exists, but he never does evil, nor is he the author of evil. And in his sovereignty and wisdom, God works through even the evil intentions of creatures to accomplish every single one of his good purposes. Now, how all of that hangs together 
we do not and will not fully understand. It is above us. It is so far above our pay grade, like can't even see it. There is mystery for us in how all of these things work together in detail. The Bible is clear about the human cause of evil and the human cause of suffering, and that's sin. So on the one hand, it's appropriate for us to say that we've done this to ourselves. The Bible is also clear about the character and the nature of God, along with the ultimate purposes of God. But in terms of how all of it unfolds, in all of God's providences, in all of His wisdom, in every detail in His mind, is not ours to know. The secret things belong to the Lord. Back to the text. Let's put our eyes on verses 16 and 17. Asaph is going to tell us now how things changed for him. We've reached a real hinge point in this psalm. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand all of these things, like his own heart, his mind, his life, the lives of the arrogant, the lives of the wicked, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until, verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God. I went into the presence of the Lord. At this point, things changed for him. At this point, his perspective shifted. He was given wisdom and insight into what is really going on. Verses 18 to 20, he's going to talk about what's really going on with wicked people. So when he says at the end of verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. He's talking about the end of the wicked. Verses 18 and following. Truly you set them, the wicked, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. The wicked are actually in a precarious place. It's a slippery place. Danger and disaster and their end is closer than they even suspect. It will be sudden and it will be like a nightmare for them. What he says. Things will not go well for the wicked in the end. But then he also discerns, having gone into the presence of God, what's really going on with respect to himself. Verses 21 and 22. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was brutish and ignorant, he says. I was like a beast toward you. Asaph realized his bitterness and his foolishness and his ignorance, how much he did not understand. This is not altogether different to Job's reaction to God at the very end of that book in Job 42, where Job says to God, I had heard of you, but I hadn't seen you. Now I've seen you. Because God essentially tells Job, child, like, be quiet. Peace. There are so many things that you don't understand. Now this might be clear to you as you read this psalm. It is to me. Making our way through it in the way that it is written. That this change of perspective and this change of mind is something that God did for Asaph. It is not something that Asaph did for himself. God did this. He worked this in this man's life. 
God is the one who changed his perspective. God is the one who gave him wisdom and insight. I mean, Asaph, for goodness sakes, was not doing well. He was ready to punt the faith. Like, I'm out of here. I'm done with this. And then God showed up. I was bitter. I was ignorant. I was wrong, Asaph says. And then these remarkable words in verses 23 and 4. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. So this is really important. Asaph's testimony is a reminder of a very critical truth. And that is that our hope is found in God's faithfulness to us, not in our faithfulness to him. Our hope is found in God's faithfulness to us, not our faithfulness to him. Another massive observation about verses 23 and 24. Verses like that make absolutely zero sense apart from Jesus and the gospel. Verse 23 and verse 24 make no sense apart from Christ in the gospel. Asaph is saying, look, I was brutish. I was ignorant. I was bitter. I was like a beast toward you, God. I was a mess. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Wait, what? Are you kidding? This man is cataloging how much of a train wreck his mind, his life, his heart were. And then he immediately speaks about how he is continually with God and God holds on to him, how God guides him and how God will receive him to glory. Are we serious? How? The gospel tells us of God's eternal plan to save his people, not by merit, not by works, but by grace through the works of Christ. In eternity past, before the ages began, God determined to save a people from the fallen mass of humanity. And God the Father and God the Son agreed together that the Son would enter the world to accomplish that redemption of those people. It was never God's design that His people would be with Him on the basis of their own merit. The Scripture could not be more clear. Like we considered recently, The Old Testament, and honestly the entire scripture, but the Old Testament is a story of drunks and liars and cheaters and murderers and adulterers and people who are struggling and wrestling and wanting to punt the faith. It's a story about a God who relentlessly pursues, redeems, and keeps his people. This is how, brothers and sisters, we can acknowledge the struggle, the difficulty, the wrestling, our own sin, and still have confidence that we will be with God forever. I was speaking recently with family members, Michelle and I were, and discussion of our own sin and raising our kids came up 
talking about how hard it can be at points and how much the wickedness of our own hearts is just kind of pulled out and put on display for everybody to see. We can stare our sin in the face and call it what it is, repent of it, take it to Christ and know that all is well. And acknowledge the reality that, you know what, I don't want to sin. I don't want to sin against my children or anybody else. And I also know that I most likely will sin again because I struggle against my own corruption. I don't want to. I hope I don't. I pray that I don't. And I know that I most likely will sin again. We never move beyond our need for Christ and his righteousness ever. This has always been God's plan. This has always been how God has dealt with his people. When you're confronted with the mess of your own life, like Asaph is talking about his life. Take great comfort in words like these. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Weary sinner, look to Christ. Completely by grace and not merit through faith and not works, the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Jesus are counted to you. So this is the glorious news of the gospel and what happened when Christ came into the world to accomplish our redemption. He took our corruption and our sinning. It matters that he took both. We are in a state of corruption and we sin. Christ took all of that upon himself. He made atonement for us. He satisfied God's wrath for us. And so it is as though in Christ Jesus, by faith, it is as though we never inherited Adam's corruption. Think about that. It is as though we never inherited Adam's corruption in Christ. And in Christ Jesus, by faith, it is as though you have never sinned. It gets better. Jesus then gave us his perfect record, his perfect life, complete obedience and fulfillment of the law. It is as though by faith in Christ, it is as though you actually accomplished all of the obedience that Jesus accomplished. It's like you did it. That's the great exchange. He takes our sin and our corruption. We get his righteousness by faith, not works. Therefore, we have confidence. We're not arrogant, but we have confidence. Humility and confidence go together. There's nothing to boast in because I didn't do it. Christ did it for me. But now I draw near to the throne of God in Christ Jesus with the full assurance of faith as I live in this community called the local church, stirring my brothers and sisters up to love and good works. This is the beauty of the gospel. Far from do this and live, this message speaks good news of the fact that Christ has done it and now we live in him. In Christ, we have been adopted, loved, redeemed, and forgiven. And therefore, like Asaph writes, afterward when this life is through, we will be received to glory. This puts us now to verses 25 and 28, the last four verses of our psalm as we conclude our time together. I want to read these verses for us again. This has been a minute since we've considered them. 
Asaph writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. God's people say amen when we read that and hear that. Every saint in the room this morning is thinking that right there. Now that's where I want to be. I want that to describe my life, my heart, my mind, my feelings and my thoughts this morning. Whom have I in heaven but you? No one. There is nothing else that I desire on earth besides you because you, God, are my salvation and my rock, my refuge, my fortress, my provider, my glory, my joy forever. My flesh and my heart may fail and they will. Certainly by that he does mean that our physical bodies will fail us. But more than that, when scripture speaks of the flesh, we're speaking about this reality of our flesh, our old man, that corruption that still dwells in our members, waging war against our spirit. My heart is prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But God is the strength. Literally, God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. As Asaph has reflected back, we see how his perspective has changed tremendously. We've already considered how God did that work in his life, and it's pretty remarkable considering where he was to where he ends up. The man who once envied the arrogant and the wicked is brought to see their end, that it's not good. Verse 27, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful. The man who once questioned God and wasn't so sure that God was in fact good and was ready to walk away is brought to a place where he can say, verse 28, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell everybody of his works. Praise God for how he works in us. How he takes us from a place like where Asaph was, like we all find ourselves in, and then brings us to a place like where Asaph ended up, where we can say this, the nearness of God is my good. And I've made the Lord God my refuge. I've taken shelter in him that I may tell everyone about him and about his wondrous works, in particular, his wondrous works of redemption. It should be noted, friends, that God did all of these things, these great things, in Asaph's life through pain and through suffering, not apart from it. This is how God works. We see that over and over again in Scripture. He works through difficulty and trial and suffering and pain to accomplish his good work in us. Why it is this way, we don't fully understand. This is another one of those above our pay grade questions. But it is the clear revelation of Scripture that this is how our God operates. Our salvation was accomplished through the suffering of Christ. And ours is the way of the cross. A way that is often characterized by difficulty and not ease. 
by weakness and not strength, by humility, not boasting, by struggle and not unbridled success in this life. Christians are not people who have it all figured out. We need to blow that nonsense up in the church that we have it all figured out because we don't. Christians are not people who have it all together. We also need to destroy that foolish thinking that we're just dotting all our I's and crossing all of our T's and it's neat and tidy because it's often not the case. Here's who Christians are. We are people who believe and proclaim that my heart and my flesh may fail and they have and they will. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Christians are people who believe and proclaim that though we have failed him too many times to count, God has never one time failed us. Christians are people who believe and proclaim that there have been times when we have been foolish and we've been bitter and we've been ignorant, but we know that the nearness of God is our good. Christians are people who believe and proclaim that in Christ we have made God our refuge so that we may tell of all of his works. Christians are people, not who have it all figured out, not who have it all together, but who believe and proclaim that in Christ God holds our right hand. That he guides us with his counsel and that afterward when all is said and done, he will receive us to glory. Because of his faithfulness, not ours, and because of Christ alone. Let's pray. Our Father, we do give you praise and thanks for being so patient with us. You tell us in your word that you are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And Father, we have experienced all of those from you, and we thank you. Thank you for being compassionate with us towards our frame. You remember that we are dust and we thank you. We pray that you would continue to work in us by your spirit. That you would deliver us from bitterness and foolishness and ignorance. That you would give us wisdom. That you would give us your perspective on our suffering and on our struggle. Father, we thank you that when we do fail and fall, that Christ has paid for all of those failings. We look to him this morning as the ground and the anchor of our confidence and as the steadfast anchor of our souls. We pray that you would continue to minister to us through the Lord's table as we come to, to receive Christ through the bread and through the juice. And we pray for your help now and for you to minister to us in Jesus' name. Amen.